marathon. Uh, supposedly, uh, what happened many, many years ago, I think it was around 490 BC, something like that, uh, the, Greece, the Greeks were in a battle against the Parisians. It's always the French, right? So the Greeks were battling the Parisians, and, um, and they were in a, it's called the Bay of Marathon, actually, and there was a long projected, projected battle, and after some time, the Greeks won. They were winning the battle. They had, in essence, defeated the Parisians, and uh, as the battle was winding down, uh, one of the, 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 the Grecian soldiers saw uh, a Parisian ship out in the Bay of Marathon sort of turn and go in the direction very quickly as if it were going to Athens. And so for whatever reason, the soldier thought uh, to himself, well, what they're going to do is they're going to run, and since we're all here and we've won this battle, they're going to go and ransack Athens and uh, or, you know, go proclaim that they have won and we have lost and and they'll, they'll basically stake a claim on the capital. And so this soldier turned uh, messenger, uh, the story goes, the legend goes, that he took off from the Bay of Marathon and that he ran all the way to Athens to announce that they had won the battle and to make sure to secure the victory. That way the French couldn't come and say, no, we really won. He wanted to go share the message that they had won uh, won the battle. And, and as legend goes, uh, this, this run is about 40 to 42 kilometers. And so what we know now as a modern day marathon is sort of based on this legend. Now there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of history related to this and a lot of different versions of the story. And you'll hear different versions of the story, but roughly what we know of as the modern day Olympic and world, uh, marathon is based on that particular run. And you can argue the details and which route he took around the mountain and how he got there. But the reason the legend stands and the reason marathon has become such a significant thing to us across human history really uh, is, is because it symbolizes the test of someone who's so committed to securing the victory that they will pay whatever price is necessary and that there's such a level of discipline and commitment to the cause that they will that they will run without hesitation towards securing the victory. In fact, the legend says that this soldier was so committed uh, to the victory that he shed he shed his weapons and everything that he had. It even the legend says that he even took off all of his clothes. Now, I'm not I'm not going to do that. Today, but it said that he was so he was so concerned with securing the victory that they had fought so hard for. He didn't want it to be lost, that he didn't want there to be any weight, any distraction, anything to keep them from securing the victory. So much so, the legend says, that he ran with complete and total abandon, even as a soldier giving up his weapons, even as a person giving up his dignity, running completely naked because he didn't want there to be any hindrances to securing the victory. In fact, the legend says that he ran so hard that when he arrived in Athens and he announced the victory, when he announced that they had won, that the, the Greeks had won, that the story says that he actually dropped dead because he had ran so hard. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine running so hard. How many of you, like some of us, we go across the parking lot. It's like, <gasps> right? But he ran roughly 40, 42 kilometers nonstop with complete abandon to secure the victory. And when I, 
when I hear that story, when I think about that story, I think a lot about Paul's words when Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy, you may be familiar with this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 says this, for I am already, this is Paul writing to his young protege, uh, Timothy, he's coming to the end of his life, coming to the end of his ministry, and listen to this, what he says, he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The great apostle Paul, of course, we know, founded much of the church as we understand it in the known world at that time and traveled out throughout all of Europe and had spread the gospel, started so many churches, coming to the end of his life, coming to the end of his ministry. He's in prison. Imagine that. He's in prison. He's worked, he's worked his whole life. He shared the gospel and he's been persecuted. He's had people turn his back on him. In fact, if you go read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just a few verses after, Timothy, after Paul says, I've run the race, I've finished the race, I've done my job. And a few verses after that, he talks about one of his closest friends and he says, and, and by the way, he abandoned me. So here is Paul in this situation. On the one hand, he's saying, I get the victory. I get the victory, but on the other hand, he's facing what to a lot of people looks like defeat. He's in prison. Many of the churches that he has started are in such tremendous conflict that he's constantly having to write letters to them to correct them because they're fighting all the time. Imagine churches fighting. Imagine people in churches arguing with one another, not getting along. And No, you can't imagine that, right? <laughs> Many of his churches are in complete controversy. There's several theological problems that are so huge that the church is struggling really to just keep going and keep moving forward. And yet in spite of all of that, Paul at the very end in prison, just been abandoned by one of his friends, much of his ministry seems to be falling apart. Paul says, I've won. Think about that for a minute. How does a person who we would judge as a failure, who we would look at, now look, we're able to look at this stuff through the lens of history and look back on Paul and say, oh, he's so great, he's so wonderful, look at what he did. But can you just for a moment, can you just for a moment transport yourself back in time and try to be realistic about the fact that most people at that time thought Paul was a failure? His friends were abandoning him. They had left him in prison. They had left him in jail. We look back on it through the lens of time and see his success. But in reality at that time, people were looking at him and looking at other apostles and other ministries and are like, oh man, he doesn't look as good as that guy. He isn't accom His church isn't as big as that guy's church. He must be a failure. And yet in, all, in spite of all of that, somehow or another, Paul comes to this moment and he's able to say, I've won the prize. I've won the prize. I want to submit to you today that I believe every one of us, every one of us in the room, that from the youngest person in this room to the oldest person in this room, every one of us have a calling. Every one of us have a purpose. Every one of us have something that the Lord has created us for. And if you notice in this particular verse of Scripture, what Paul says is, look, on the day, on the last day, it is God, the righteous judge, who's going to reward me. In other words, Paul had a perspective that allowed him to celebrate victory even when other people didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing, where he was doing it. 
Paul was able to celebrate. He was able to have peace. He was able to have strength. He was able to keep going. He was able to pay the ultimate price because his perspective was on how God viewed him, not how others viewed him. Every one of us in this room, I believe, have been called to a marathon, this marathon called life. And that may not mean 40 kilometers or, you know, how we like to go big here in South Africa. We just double that, call it comrades. What is wrong with us? We can't run a normal marathon. We have to double it, right? And we have to run all the way up the mountain and then down the next year. What are we doing? All of us, whether it's not, it's that physical run or not, all of us have been called to this marathon called life and that, that life has a purpose. God has a purpose. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. But what I often wonder is how many of us are running that purpose or living that purpose with a healthy perspective. In fact, I fear that many times, many of us, instead of being able to be like Paul and be at peace no matter our circumstance, I'm afraid that many of us often may look at our lives and feel like failures, may feel like we're not accomplishing who, what we're called to accomplish or we're not being the people we are called to be. And so over the next few weeks, I just want to talk about what it looks like to run this race, what it looks like to live this life, what it looks like to have the kind of perspective that allows you to have peace no matter what your circumstances are. Imagine that. Imagine being able to get up tomorrow and no matter how bad business is, still know, still know that you know that you know that you're who you were created to be. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine next Wednesday being able to come home for dinner and, and no matter what's going on in your marriage, be able to sit there and know that you know that you know you're the man or you're the woman, you're the husband, you're the wife that God has called you to be. In spite of the circumstance, in spite of the moment, you're in the marathon, you're the person you were created to be. Paul lived with that perspective. And I believe over the next few weeks, we're going to learn together on how to live with any kind of effectiveness. And this is this, people are only as prepared for growth, only as prepared for success, only as prepared for fulfillment at, to the degree that they are willing to be honest with themselves about themselves. Now, if you've been around here at North Place for very long at all, you've heard me say this before. It's it's a foundational thing that I teach. It's a foundational thing that I believe. I think it's foundational to who we are as Christians because I think for many of us, we struggle in life. We struggle in fulfillment and happiness and joy and peace because we're unwilling to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. And if there's anything you can say about the Apostle Paul, if you read, uh, if you read his letters, is Paul was willing to be transparent. He was willing to be honest with himself. I mean, here's a guy who said, I'm the chief among sinners. I'm the biggest mess. I've failed. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. Paul was willing to admit his mistakes. He was willing to be honest with himself about himself. Many of us, I believe, we struggle to be effective in the race that God has called us to be because we don't have the perspective of being honest with ourselves about ourselves. I want to read again, and this is uh, going to be foundational for us during this series is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to encourage you uh, during this series uh, to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 during your daily 20. Uh, for those of you who are new to North Place, we have a basic discipline that we all commit to for those of us who are a part of this church called the daily 20. A daily 20 means this, that, that I'm going to take five minutes a day to worship. 
Because we believe that to live in this world, we have to continually change our perspective and get our eyes on God and not on ourselves. Because everything in this world tells you to put your eyes on yourself. And so for a, a starting first discipline for all of us who are a part of North Places, we say, we're not gonna put our eyes on ourselves. We're gonna take at least five minutes every day and put our eyes on God. So we commit to five minutes of worship. We commit to, we commit to five minutes of, of prayer, taking our needs to God, talking to God, communicating with God. We commit to five minutes of, of reading scripture and we, fit, we commit to, and this is the hard one I think for most of us, we commit to five minutes of listening. Hello. Is that hard for anybody besides me? It, a lot of us are it's re really good at saying, God, I need this, I need this, I need this, but it's something else to just be silent and let God speak to you. Some of us are very uncomfortable with silence. Some of us are very uncomfortable listening. So here at North Place, we commit to what we call a daily 20. You'll hear us talk about it from time to time. Five minutes of worship, five minutes of word, five minutes of prayer, five minutes of listening. Well, during your daily 20, during this series, I wanna encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter nine. Just pull it out every day. You may have other things that you're reading right now. It won't take you just a moment. Read 1 Corinthians nine, because that's gonna be kind of our basis for this series. I wanna read verses 24 through 27 to you today. It says this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only the one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You notice this here, we're reading another letter from Paul and he's talking about running and he's talking about boxing. That's because that legend that I was talking about in those games and competing, that was a part of Paul's world at that time. He was referring to what we would talk about as we talk about a marathon. Isn't that amazing? That all these years later, that, that concept of the discipline of the run was embedded in Paul's life. It was embedded in his theology. And so as he's talking about it, he's talking about the fact that as someone who's living for God, as someone who's living with purpose, he's going to run his race in such a way that he doesn't get disqualified for the prize. In other words, he's saying the prize is worth whatever I've got to do, however I've got to live my life, however I've got to dis discipline my life so that I receive the prize. The first point that I wanna make today about running this marathon that you and I are called to is this. The greatest challenge that I have to achieving my potential is me. As you read this chapter that I encourage you to read during your daily 20, you're gonna find Paul talking about um, his apostleship and, and, and this, this poor guy, he was constantly having to defend himself. Imagine that. Again, through history, we look back and we see what all Paul accomplished, but during his day, he was continually under attack People were always undermining him. 
And so he's writing the church of Corinth. He had started this church. He had helped these people. He'd done so much to serve these people, and they were so ungrateful. And here he is having to once again defend himself. And he's talking about the price that he's having to pay during chapter 9. And he comes to the end of it, and he says, listen, just like he had said to Timothy, look, I'm, I'm, running, I'm running this race, and here's the thing. In spite of everything that I face, I am not going to let myself disqualify myself from the prize that I've been called to. Um, several years ago, I can't remember exactly how many, many it was now, I uh, contracted tick bite fever. We were living in Eswatini at the time, and I contracted tick bite fever. And if you know anything about tick bite fever, uh, basically there's this organism that gets in your blood, and as it comes into your blood, it causes you to have flu-like symptoms. And uh, most people, when they get tick bite fever, it's about a six-week process your body goes through, and you get very, very sick. And then eventually you're, you build up enough white blood cells, and your body's able to combat it. However, about 5% of the population of people who get tick bite fever have what's called long-term rickettsia. What that means is the organism, uh, basically when the white blood cells attack it, instead of being killed off, the organism somehow or another goes and it colonizes, it hides in, in some of your organs. And so every 27 days, it regestates, it restarts the process over again. So every 27 days, you start over being sick again. Well, luckily enough, I was one of those 5% of people. And so I got really, really sick. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. So I got really, really sick. And I was sick for about uh, a little over 10 months. And um, I just, uh, my body was absolutely devastated, lost, uh, lost a, a ton of weight, uh, was working very, very hard at that time. And, and uh, as, a, as a workaholic, I couldn't, I couldn't seem to make myself stop working and really tried to get medical help, couldn't get medical help, and, and just got very, very sick. Uh, but miraculously, and it really was a miracle, after about 10 months, a little over 10 months, I think it was, the Lord healed me, just came down and, and just completely healed my body. After, after experiencing that healing, I had lost so much weight and so much muscle mass um, that I, I thought, what can I do to rebuild my body? Because I had no strength, uh, was just, just, just wa- had really wasted away. And um, we were living in Eswatini at the time. There were no gyms to go to. There were no personal trainers or anything like that, at least at that time living there. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I train for and run a marathon? Sounds like a great idea, right? Now, you would think that I had, must have had some history of being a marathon runner to have this idea, but I didn't. I had n- never been a distance runner in my life, never wanted to run distance or loved run distance. I was a sprinter. I did all that stuff, but I didn't, I didn't like running long distances. But I thought, if I'm going to rebuild my body, let me train for and run a marathon, and I'll train, for, I'll train for about a year, then I'll run a marathon. And so that's exactly what I did. I went through, I went through a process of training for about a year, to run a marathon. And what I learned during that time uh, was that in running, in running a marathon, everything else I had ever done athletically in my life, there had always been an opponent. There had always been someone to compete against. But when it came to distance running, I really wasn't running against anybody else. It was me and the clock. And the greatest opponent, the greatest obstacle for com, uh, completing that marathon or completing that marathon in the time that I wanted to complete that marathon was really me. 
It was going to be me and, and disciplining my body, me causing my body to develop in such a way that it could be oxygenated, that it could handle the rigorous run, that it could handle the process, the heat, the elements, all of those things. Because from day to day, I never knew if it was going to be raining. I never knew if it was going to be hot or cold. And I couldn't get up in the morning and say, oh, it looks cloudy today. I can't run. Because if you're going to run a marathon, if you're going to run 42 kilometers, you got to run constantly. Because if you skip a day, you skip a couple days because it's cold, or you skip a couple days because you're busy, or something comes up in your life, or you've had a bad day, or you're in a bad mood, or your stomach's bothering you a little bit. If you skip a day in your training, all of a sudden, you get so far behind, you get off schedule, there's no way you're ever going to complete the race, Right? And so what I found was if I was going to complete that race, if I was going to run it in the time that I wanted to run it, the only, the only competition that I had was myself. It was my own mind. It was my own will. It was my own emotions. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he's saying to them, listen, I, I'm facing this opposition. Even you don't believe in me. But what, what I really understand is this isn't about you. This isn't about anybody else. This isn't even about the devil. This is about me. When I say to you, when I say to you that the greatest obstacle that you're going to have in your life, the greatest challenge you're going to have in your life to reaching your potential is you, some of us get a little bit offended. Because we live in a, we live in a world, we live in a culture of victim mindset, right? Everybody's a victim of something or someone. And what, what I found as I was training for that marathon, was that I couldn't, I couldn't be a victim. I couldn't be a victim of my circumstances. I couldn't be a victim of my situation. I couldn't control the things that I couldn't control. The only thing that I could control was my response. The only thing that I could control was myself. The only thing that I could control was I could stop drinking soda because soda wasn't going to allow my body to function at an optimal level so that I could run the race. So I couldn't control every day I had a bad day, but I could stop drinking soda and only drink water. Are you with me? I had to make a decision that I wasn't going to allow my circumstances to determine my reality, that I was going to take ownership of my own mind, will, emotions, and body. And if I was going to complete the race, if I was going to be effective, then I was going to own what I owned, and I was going to release what I didn't own. Some of us allow our circumstances, our situation, things that we do not own and cannot control to control us. We allow the things that have happened to us to define us. Just, just let that sink in a little bit. We allow the things that have happened to us to label us, to name us, to define us, to set limits on us. The thing about running a marathon is that you come to a place where you're breaking through limits. You're teaching your body, your mind, your will, your emotions that you can do things that you never thought was possible. Some of us, like I said, we go across the parking lot and we start wheezing right now. 
But every one of us in this room have capacity that is innate, that is built within us. And over a period of time, with the right kind of concentration, with the right kind of determination, with the will to say, you know what, I will not allow myself to be limited. Over time, we can train our bodies. We can train our minds. Some of you in this room are capable of things that you never could imagine. Some of you are, are doing jobs right now that you never thought you could do. But because over a period of time, you committed yourself to learning a new skill or a new talent or a new ability. Now you're achieving things that you never thought you could achieve. Why? Because the potential that God has placed within us is limitless. If we will commit ourselves to not being defined by those limitations. Paul said, listen, I won't be defined by my limitations. And the question I have for every one of us today is, are you allowing your limitations to define you? Now, please understand I'm not, I'm not being heartless this morning. Just like I couldn't help, I really legitimately couldn't help that I got rickettsia. I couldn't help that I got sick. I couldn't help that season of my life where my body was completely breaking down. I'm not, I'm not being heartless about that today. So there, there are very real challenges in this room. There, there are circumstances that are unimaginable that people in this room have faced. But at some point, at some place, at some time, you have to, like Alex was challenging us today, we have to recognize our identity in Christ and just make up our mind. I will not allow those things to define me. I know who God says that I am. I know what God has created me for. Paul said, listen, I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to be my biggest enemy. I want to read a story to you from Genesis chapter 25. Um, Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 to 34. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau had been out in the field, he had been working, he had been doing what it was that he was supposed to do, what his family responsibilities were. He'd be working really hard, he comes in, and he's so hungry, his brother's cooking, he smells the red bean soup, whatever it is, he smells it, it smells good to him, and he says, give me some of that food, I want something to eat. His brother says, I'll give it to you, but you gotta sell your birthright, you gotta sell out, you gotta, you gotta sell out on the price. You got a prize, you got a birthright, you have, you have something that is yours because in, in this particular case, in his birth order, because of his family, he had a, leg, he had a legacy, he had, he had something that, that belonged to him. But in this moment, and what's interesting is it wasn't like he was out playing, it wasn't like he was, he was out hunting, he was doing his job and he came in from the field doing, apparently doing what it was that he was ma made to do. But in that moment, he was so hungry he was so hungry, and his brother said to him, I'll give, I'll give it to you, but you've got to give up your birthright. You've got to sell out the prize. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And the scripture says that he despised 
his birthright. I've wrestled with the story so many times because there's this guy, he's doing what he's supposed to do, apparently doing what he was created to do, and yet in, in this moment of weakness, it's, it's easy to judge somebody when they're doing something wrong, but he was apparently living in his purpose. He was apparently working hard. I value hardworking people. I'm just being honest with you. Lazy people, I struggle with lazy people. I do. It's hard. It's hard for me to love lazy people. I'm just being honest. I'm sorry your pastor's telling you that. It's hard for me to love lazy people. But this guy was not being lazy. He was in his purpose. Some of you need to set, some of you need to let this settle into your theology because you've embraced the theology that said, "Oh, if I do everything right, then I'm not going to face any opposition or I'm certainly not going to make a mistake where I fell or I mess up." You've got this this name it claim it theology that that has told you that as long as you do everything right, everything's going to happen right. And here's this guy who was apparently doing right. Maybe his heart wasn't right. I don't know, but he was apparently doing right. And in this moment of doing right, his heart was revealed. There's the gold right there. He was doing what was right. And even though he was doing what he was obligated to do, he was doing what was right. His heart still wasn't right. And so a moment came that caused his heart to be revealed. And what was that moment? He got hungry. You want to know how you really know somebody? Hang out with them when they're hungry. But you find out who somebody is. You find out their level of maturity. You find out their level of patience. You know what you find out? You find out their level of self-control. Maturity and self-control are married. Maturity and self-control are married. You find out a person's level of self-control when they're hungry. And what's, what's really interesting is you find out a person's level of maturity, their level of self-control, when they feel like they're entitled to something. Few things distract you from an effective pace of running this marathon, like the urgency of entitlement. What, what do you feel entitled to? When you feel entitled to something, it causes, you, it causes you to let down your guard. It causes you to violate your conscience. It causes you to cross lines that you would never cross. And here's the thing. Here's what I learned when I was training for a marathon and when I was running a marathon is you get into this trap where you think to yourself, I remember I had this watch. Desra hated this watch that I would wear. But I wore this watch all the time. I, can't, I don't even get to have an Apple watch anymore because I made her so mad wearing this watch during this season of our life. I really would like to have one, but she won't let me because it's a, dist- it's a distraction. Because I was constantly distracted. No offense, if you have an Apple watch, God bless you. But I can't do it. I'm not disciplined enough. It was a distraction. And you know what I was doing? I was constantly checking it for how many calories I had burned. Because here's the deal. If I burned enough calories, I got a treat. Oh, no, no, one, no one over here likes treats. Oh, that's the people over here. If I burned enough calories, guess what? I got to have a Coke. I'm addicted to Coke. If you see me drink a Coke, just slap it out of my hand because I'm addicted to it. I'm addicted to sweets. I love, I love sweets. There's some of my people, I heard you. 
So if I burned enough calories, if I went on a long enough run that day or walked around or was working up, I was constantly checking because, because if, I, if I noticed, then all of a sudden, I, guess what? I, I have the opportunity to treat myself. I have the opportunity. I'm entitled to something. And so now all of a sudden, I'm eating things. I'm drinking things that I know is not good for me, but I'm entitled to it because I burned enough calories because I had a long enough run that day. And when I, I'll never forget when I was running the marathon, when it finally came to the day that I was running the marathon, and, and we're going to talk about this more um, um, during this series. When I was running the marathon, I remember during the day coming to you, and they had those, you know, those drinks stations, those refreshment stations. I remember running the marathon, and because I wasn't disciplined, I wasn't keeping pace like I, like I, I would run too fast, and I remember coming to one of those drink stations, and the worst things that you could possibly do, I remember coming to them and looking at my watch and thinking, oh, I'm ahead of pace, so I can stop, I can linger here, I can linger here a little while, because I'm ahead of pace. And then before I knew it, my race started falling apart because I was running from entitlement to entitlement to entitlement. And so instead of pacing myself, instead of being consistent, instead of minding my nutrition and doing all the things that I wanted to do, I would, you know, there are people on those marathons, there are people on the side of the road, they're handing out, I'm wearing shiny hats, I'm doing everything that I'm not supposed to be doing. I'm certainly not naked and unarmed like that marathon guy. I'm doing everything wrong because I'm running from entitlement to entitlement to entitlement, and I'm violating my plan. I'm violating the plan that I had set. Everything, listen, I had trained for a year to run that race, and yet because of the lack of discipline in my life, and actually it was a lack of maturity as a runner, I ended up violating my plan, all my hard work, because I get caught up in the moment. I got caught up in the crowd. I got caught up in the idea that I'm entitled to this. So when I talk about your greatest enemy as far as running the marathon, one of the first things I want you to think about are in your life, how are the things that you're entitled to perhaps violating your purpose? Consider, just, I just invite you by the Holy Spirit to consider perhaps there are moments in your life where your stomach growls and you think, oh, I did this this week. I did this this week. Oh, I worked a few extra hours, so let me just lay down this plastic and charge this right now. Yeah, I've got a plan to be out of debt. I've got a plan for financial freedom, but I've worked a few extra hours, so I'm entitled to this new article of clothing. I'm entitled to this vacation. And before you know it, you're violating a purpose, a plan. You're violating something that you were created for, and you're selling out. And that's exactly what Esau did. He sold out, and it's the opposite of what Paul said. Paul said, I'm not going to sell out. Paul said, I refuse to sell out. Few things will distract you from an effective pace like entitlement. Reading, going back to Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 24 through 27, he says, am I not free? I, I love Paul. Again, his transparency is so great. Am I not free? Am I not apostle? Am I not entitled to something? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? I mean, who else can claim that? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Remember, he's writing to a church that he had started that was treating him like garbage. I, I planted this church and you're treating me like this. It gets worse. Listen to this. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. 
for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. (laughs) Don't we have the right to food and drink? This is what keeps making me laugh. I knew that was getting this. Don't we have the right to take a wife? Paul says, Peter gets to walk around with a wife. I got to go around all these places without a wife. (laughs) There's apparently, I I, I can't wait to get to heaven and and meet these two guys. Apparently, when you read New Testament scripture, there seems to be a little bit of a kind of a rub between these two guys, Peter and and Paul. (laughs) Here Paul is defending himself. He's like, Peter gets a wife? Don't I get to have a wife? Am I not entitled to at least have a wife? Listen, entitlement's a hard thing. But if you're, if you're not careful, if you're not mature, if, you're not, if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to really deal with you, entitlement will sidetrack you from your purpose. And really, friend, it, it's not a pastor on a stage that's going to that's gonna help you with this. It's the Holy Spirit because entitlement is a sneaky, sneaky thing. Remember, Esau had just, he'd just been working hard in the field. Apparent, maybe it seems as though doing what he was designed to do and yet it was in that moment of entitlement which was a very real thing, being hungry. I mean, if you've ever been hungry, you know. But in that, in that moment of a very real human experience, he ended up, His heart was revealed. He despised his purpose. He sold it out to fulfill that moment. Is it possible the Holy Spirit could be speaking to some of us today, maybe challenging what may not look like a big deal to somebody else? I've already messed with your theology a little bit, so let me just go a little bit further. See, we have this thing about sin. we, We think that sin to me is the, my sins are the same as everybody else's sin. And, and, and scripture is clear about some things that are sin for all of us. But do you understand that, that there are things that are sin for you that are not sin for me? There are things that are sin for me that is not sin for you. Some of you, your sense of justice right now is just, <laughs> just going crazy. There's some, there's some of us that God sets limits in our life. And says, don't touch that, don't have anything to do with that, don't go around that. Because for our race, for our marathon, that's not going to work. And some of you are looking at other Christians or other people who claim to be Christians. And you're looking at their liberty and you're looking at their freedom. And you're feeling as though you should be able to do whatever they do. And boy, that used to upset me when I was training for a marathon and we would go out to eat with friends or with other people and we would go to a meal or whatever and people would be able to partake in things that I couldn't partake of because I was in training. Paul said no one runs this race and expects to win unless they go into strict training. They set limitations for themselves that do not apply to other people. And can I help you with something? Please, 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 please understand. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I embrace limitations on our lives that do not apply to other people. The way I do business, the way I live my life, the way I interact with my spouse, my kids, my family, 
everything is different for me because I have embraced the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when I embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to me about the areas of boundaries in my life. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to me about boundaries in my life, because he knows what's best for me, he sets those boundaries in such a way that sets me up for success. Let me say this, and I'll bring things to a close today. What you and I need to know is that not every noble pursuit is a worthy prize. Some of us live with different boundaries, different limitations, and sometimes we look at things in our life and we say, oh, that's a noble pursuit. I should, be, I, I, should, I should have access to that. I should, Like Paul, I should get to have a wife going around with me everywhere I go. For whatever reason, I love Paul's honesty. For whatever reason, for him, for him, it didn't make sense for him to have a wife running around with him. But for Peter, Peter was able to have his wife apparently travel with him. Are you, do you see this? Is a wife a good thing? Absolutely. <laughs> Praise the Lord, I'm not Paul. I wasn't called to that journey. But there was a boundary and a limitation in his life. I don't understand that. I can't explain it. Can I even say to you, it, it, I struggle with it in my theology. But for whatever reason, what was a noble pursuit, what was a good thing, was not the best thing for him. Another question, just want to encourage you to wrestle with it this morning. Is it possible that every good thing you're pursuing isn't the best thing that God has for you? Is it possible in this race that you're running, is it possible that you're dealing with challenges and difficulties and dealing with effectiveness in your life because you're judging your pursuits on whether or not it's a good thing instead of is it the best thing? Is it the thing that God is calling me to? It's a mature person who understands that I don't judge myself by others. I judge myself by what is God saying to me? What is he calling me to? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is your treasure? What are you pursuing? What are you living for? When Paul uses this analogy of a race, he says, these people, they do all of this for a a wreath that's going to pass away. But we as believers, we're running this race for a prize that lasts forever. For a prize that lasts forever. What? You're all, you're all busy. You're all racing. I know. Some of you are working yourselves to death. I understand that. I know that. But what, what is the prize? What are you after? What are you making these sacrifices for? What are you doing this for? Is it what other people think? Is it what other people see? Is it society and culture's idea of success? Or is it who God has called you to be? Who he's created you to be? Who he's destined you to be?